This is CliffCentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned into The Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. As usual, I'll be your host for the next hour, Kingsley Kipur. I'm joined in studio by a giggling Ranjani Munasami. Ranjani, thank you for coming to join us. Hello, King. I'm just so happy yeah. to be here with you. I, I mean, it's been so a while. Long. It's been a while. It's been a while. And of course, and Greg Nicholson. Yes, Tom. Uh, great to be here, Kingsley. And yeah. Kingsley was just boasting about how yeah. good he is with his sound deck. It's crazy how good I am. Like, it's just picture like black coffee at Coachella. And yeah, that. it's really yeah. interesting. That's pretty much me right now. And Fatima, who's usually behind the scenes on social media, is with us on the mic today. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to make a composure, aka joke, but I've got nothing. So I think we'll just get right into it. Well, like you could say something like, "How much composure does he have right now, considering <laughs> everything that's going on?" <laughs> no. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. And Jenny, I think the big question, at least for me, is: Are my hopes of having Tuli Madonsela as the next president? Is there any merit there? Is it possible? No. no? Unfortunately, no. Kingsley, it's a complete it's pipe dream. No. She is a member of the NC, That's and something. it's likely that the NC will uh, get to determine who the next president is. Yep. But uh, she's not in the leadership of the ANC, and she's currently not in the running or being backed by any of the factions of the ANC. So if you know anything about how the ANC operates and how it chooses its leaders, mm. it's normally the person at the, the people at the, the top of the food chain in the ANC. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's still two years and three months before the ANC does choose its next president. And, uh, but for now, uh, it's, uh, there's, there's two contenders, but that can, can change dramatically in the, over the next two years. Um, but I think that the prospect of a woman president mm. is a real factor now and is going to determine a lot of how the debate unfolds. Yeah, that's interesting because the Women's League has in the past come under a lot of flack for not really doing anything and, and saying South Africa is not ready for a female president and so on and so on. So it's, it's nice to know that that's a real like legitimate well, possibility now. It, it may be a nice to know, but I don't think uh, they're doing it because... A woman president will mm. define the woman, the gender debate in the country or, or on the principle. Mm. Uh, I think it's very much determined by the factional uh, divisions in the ANC. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the general camp warfare, um, it's about maintaining the power networks, uh, that exist in the ANC. And I think that the people who are now backing this woman president who looks like, well, the candidate looks likely to be in Kasazana Lamini Zuma, are mm. uh, first and foremost not in favor of her, but more opposed to the candidacy of Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. Well, I'm curious, what does Cyril Ramaphosa represent? Why would, why would people be so determined to oppose him? Okay, the first thing is that he had been out of politics for, for a long time, mm-hmm. right, from the mid-90s, and then he came back in 2012, and he came back on on the Zuma ticket uh, to be his deputy because of the uh, the, the the anything but Zuma camp um, had uh, had tried to project uh, Khalima Motlante as Zuma's successor, and uh, the Zuma camp didn't want that. So they needed a strong candidate uh, and somebody that they could make a deal with, and the deal with Cyril Ramaphosa at the time was that he would stand on the Zuma ticket as deputy president on condition mm-hmm. that he does not have to contest the next 
uh, ANC presidency okay. So he would be the automatic choice However, sadly for him It's not working <laughs> out that way He's not the automatic choice And it looks like he's going to have the, the race of his life With, um, with, the, with you know Because the, the dynamics have changed as, as they inevitably do in the mm. ANC I find it interesting, Cyril Ramaphosa When we talk about It's so rare for us when we talk about his his potential rise to the presidency of the ANC mm. in the country. No one ever, as a drawback, it's that he doesn't have a lot of support, that he may not play into the right factions of the ANC. Mm. No one really mentions his sort of murky role uh, in Marikana, which the commission obviously found that he wasn't responsible, but that yeah. doesn't... He still had a role to play there. Um, but also I'm interested in... How often these days he's being rolled out for government? So, you know, he was at the, the Homo Naledi, I think. Um, yeah, he spoke at the, 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 the other day. He yeah, was he at the, the, wasn't he at the beatification? Yeah, he was at the beatification of That's right. right. That yeah. ceremony, he's, he's, you know, the Mr. Fix-It man for ESCOM. He's been going to communities where there's trouble. I think he was part of the Lesotho when there was... Yeah, yeah he, he was, he was, he was the, the leader for the SADC uh, mediation, mediation in Lesotho's political problems. And even and, in the NC, he's being deployed to sort out the problems in Kosatu. That's right. Yeah. It's sort of incredible. I guess it's what one of those things you throw them in into the mix and see if he if he fails it's not Zuma's fault if he succeeds Zuma can claim the the credit for that but I wonder how I'm still not certain how the public perceives him in terms of would they like him as a president I think the more conservative leaning factions of the public would respect Cyril Ramaphosa just because he's been a success in business and because of his role in the in the um, the transition to democracy. Yeah, well, look, he, he, he does have a formidable background in the ANC, um, you know, and he's, uh, uh, his background in the National Union of Mine Workers and then the role he played, uh, in the transition process, the negotiation of the constitution. And let's not forget that he was Nelson Mandela's, mm. um, favored candidate for, to be Mandela's successor. Mm. However, since then, um, you know, he's concentrated completely on his business interests and did not keep any kind of link with his constituency and his prime constitu- constituency let's f- not forget was the mine workers mm. those are the people who thrust him to power uh, in the end which are now his biggest enemies which is which are now his biggest enemies you know so that that is a grand irony about it but he did not service his, his prime constituency of mine workers primarily and workers in general so there's the, there's this disjunct now between mm. him and who was supposed to be his constituency now the big problem he has is that who is his constituency that will back his candidacy? And I think that's the big problem because so far, the only people who have spoken in favor mm. of him has been the province of Gauteng. And I think, uh, Paul Machatile, you know, kind of uh, came up in passing that they would, uh, they would support him because it's, the, they would follow the tradition of the ANC of, um, of the deputy president naturally becoming the president. Mm. But, you know, there are always caveats in, in these things because, for example, Halima Modlante didn't automatically become president. Mm. So it never happens that way. So it's tradition for only as long as it can work for your campaign. And that was a failed mission by the ANC in Gauteng. They yes, failed exactly. there when they, they backed the wrong horse. They backed the wrong yeah, horse, I'm, yeah. I'm curious, is the, is the Zulu, or lack of being Zulu, rather, is that a thing? Because that's often something I hear in taxis and just like in chit-chat is being like, no, we can't have somebody who's not Zulu. Look, they're have. always they're always racial always and ethnic wonder. dynamics, yeah. you know, in everything that mm. we do mm. uh, in our country. And um, I think that the ethnic question it, it would be a problem as well. Uh, it was, it was, you know, an underlying factor, subliminal mm. factor when uh, in two thousand and seven, uh, in terms of the provinces' uh, support for the two candidates then, which was Jacob Zuma and Tabumbeki. Um, it was less. 
defined, I think, in 2012 with Zuma and um, and Halima Modlante, mostly because Modlante's campaign was so disorganized. Mm. So, you know, you, you, it, there, there was I like no, that you call it a campaign. It was a campaign on his behalf yeah. until he mm. signed the acceptance of the nomination form. So, you know, what you have now at a subliminal level mm. is a discussion that perhaps, you know, the the, uh, the KwaZulu-Natal province and by this, you know, the, the subtext of it means that the Zulus in the country want to preserve, um, you know, the, 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 the power arrangement and uh, their dominance over South African politics. And therefore, there's a backing for Nkasuzana Adlamini Zuma. But I don't think it's as clear cut as that because mostly because the, the province of KwaZulu-Natal mm. at the moment is divided. Between the, these two camps, so and I think that's a major complication going mm. forward as to as to what stance that province will take and who they'll back. Mm. And I think it's important to remember, Kingsley, when you look at these things, the ANC, the KZN ANC, mm. has the most members out of any province, and so they're just the most also the most influential in terms of voting numbers. That's interesting because Ranjani, you've been writing ab- about this what is being called the Premier League, and I was surprised that KZN wasn't in that. Well, sort of group. Could you just tell us what that is. Yeah, and the, how you the see reason it that, that yeah. they're not in that group is because the premier of the province is yeah. doesn't support the Premier League. So Senzo Mkuno is in the opposition camp, and uh, the the provincial secretary there, um, uh, Sishle, uh, is 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 the one who is said to be in the Premier League, but he's not a premier. So so that's the so it messes up the formula a little. I, think bit. I just got the joke, the pun on Premier League right then. Oh, yeah. because they premiers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh gosh! Wow, sorry. As a football fan, I was just like Premier League is elite. It's awesome. Anyway, what is the Premier League from first principles? What is it? What's okay, so, the, it's, so the, it's it's led primarily by the premiers of three provinces, okay. which is the Northwest, the Free State, and Mpumalanga. So that is why that's how it it got it got that it got its name. But obviously, they they are people in all the provinces and all structures. So mm. people from the women's league, the youth league, um, and I think that they're going to make the biggest bang with the youth league because the youth. I mean, the women's league. It it it, it was obvious that there was uh, interference mm. uh, in terms of how the youth league. Uh, the Women's League Conference panned out But I think it's even more obvious now With the NC Youth League mm. In terms of um, uh, Firstly, and uh, you know That it was a, a virtual walkover By them, uh, uh, by Colin Mayanese's camp It's uncontested Yeah, uncontested wow. But secondly, the, the kind of statements and comments That Colin Mayanese has been making Since okay. his election mm-hmm. I was, I'm just interested in terms of Ranjini, maybe you know this better than mm. I, I would So you know, there's been talk and reports of the Premier League, but they've all been denied. You know, everyone says, no, there's no such thing That's that exists. I heard about yeah. that from the newspapers, from City Press, I think people have been saying. From, well, I know Gwede Mantasha would say that you're not an ANC insider. <laughs> <laughs> but have you, how much have you heard in terms of the legitimacy of the Premier League? Is it, what's your thoughts on, on how established and it is? Like, do you know what I mean? Because there yes. is denial that it's not a real thing. Look, is it, it a real thing? No, it's it's not a legitimate structure. It's mm. not uh, so because camp. It, it's yeah, a camp. Course. It's a faction. It's a camp. And if you remember before the Mangaung conference, there was anything but Zuma camp. <laughs> so that's what happens. You know that it's just a faction of an <laughs> NC. So a grouping of people who yeah. have similar interests, mm. similar outlooks, and you know try and campaign for the same thing, then fall under the same umbrella, and they give you know they either give themselves a name or they dubbed as such by an opposition camp. Mm. And this mm. is what's happening. 
happen now. So look, there's no formal grouping that, you know, they didn't kind of sign up for this, but it's a loose association of people who are proving to be extremely influential in names. So they don't have like football jerseys printed yet. So that would be quite cool. <laughs> hey, no, let's not rule that out. We'll put that sometime. I mean, I'm fascinated just seeing that already people are sort of throwing their weight around a bit and already deciding who goes in with the women's league and the youth league. So that's, yeah, that's I mean, it, it, they, they, they didn't, there wasn't even a pretense of, uh, you know, trying, uh, to be moderate in terms mm. of what they were pushing for. Cause it was quite obvious both in the women's league and in the youth league conferences that, you know, that they, they backed certain candidates and they were going all out to, to support, uh, support them. Okay. So my hopes of Tuli Madanzela are officially just um, and null she and can void. she can always join the Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they'd welcome her. With that, but, um, <laughs> so. but it'll be interesting, actually, what does happen to Tuli mm-hmm. Madanzela because next year, I think, next year is when her her tenure as public protector ends, right? Yes, it, it'll be it, very interesting to see what she does next. Yes, it would be around and o- who's the next October. public protector. October 2016 that her, her term ends. But she has stated several times and even in an interview with us, uh, Greg, that, um, you know, she wants to, to, to stay in the realm of administrative justice. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think she has the stomach for hard politics. Oh, I don't think she isn't ha- even has the charisma for, you know, oh. for, for getting 16 <laughs> people in a taxi, like, let alone trying to get people to vote for ouch. a party. Ouch, ouch, ouch. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry. I mean, I was thinking about. It. I think it's. I think it's for the best that she doesn't join politics because, I think there would then have to be this whole thing that she's all knowing and she's so brave and it becomes about her. Yes, but uh, and I she, think that's part of the problem with how we do things. It just becomes so much around individuals. No. Look, to survive in politics, yeah. you need a pretty colorful character, yeah. which she doesn't have. You know, she, she, she's, she's, she's not a, she's not the consummate pol- politician mm. unless she starts taking, uh, lessons in, in politics from Fikilem Balula. I don't <laughs> think she's gonna get it anytime soon. And she'll just be on Twitter putting up memes and gifts all day. That's, I don't <laughs> think that's particularly helpful Going either. Boxing matches around the world. I know, hanging yeah. out with, <laughs> yeah, with Serena. Money, money Mayweather, Serena Williams, yeah. <laughs> To change topic quickly, I just want to talk about something that happened in Lupopo over the past couple of weeks where the Pope had declared somebody a martyr. Um, to talk about that, we'll be talking to Russell Pollitt, the director of the Jesuit Institute. Jesuit. I'm not doing all my pronunciation. <laughs> and I'm going to try and say beatified, beatified. Russell will tell us. Russell, can you hear us? Good afternoon. I can hear you loud and clear. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Now, Russell, I want you to please tell us about Chimanganzo Daswa and, and what happened. And um, for me, it's something that really just came out of nowhere in terms of the news cycle. I hadn't heard the name before and was just really surprised to hear that this was really making international news. Yeah, Daswa was a guy who lives up in Limpopo. He was from the area. And in 1990, he was killed by a mob mm. uh, in his village, um, basically because he refused to participate in a witch hunt for someone who they believed had uh, burnt down a number of local houses. There was a big thunderstorm and lightning struck, and he tried to explain to them, listen, mm. this is a scientific uh, kind of thing. This is what happened. They said, no, it must be a witch. They wanted everyone in the village to pay five rand uh, so they could go and consult a sorcerer in, a, in another village. Mm. And he refused. He said, because of my, my Christian faith, I refused to do this. So he was ambushed, and he was basically... Uh, beaten to death by the villagers because he said he wouldn't participate. Um, so right from the time that he uh, was killed, mm. uh, local local kind of the local Christian community sort of said he was a martyr. That the reason he had died was that he refused to participate in that witch hunt, and um, 
you know, just because of his Christian faith. So they, they started an investigation there, the local church, and uh, they then put together a whole lot of witness uh, sort of testimonies, over 850 pages. They sent them off to uh, uh, the local bishop who looked at it and endorsed it. He sent it to Rome. And, yeah, after a long process, after like 15 years of investigation, they decided that Dastar will be called a martyr. And on uh, Saturday, Sunday, was the official sort of uh, ceremony mm. that declared him a martyr. Okay, but it's quite unusual for a lay person to be declared a martyr, isn't it? It is, yes. I mean, normally, uh, it's been kind of religious people that, that have got that, like it's been a priest or a, or a deacon or, or a monk or whatever. So mm. this, is, this is quite unusual. And it also means that the actual process of uh, him being declared a martyr is different. Normally, when someone is considered to be a holy person, they would do an investigation and they would say, okay, well, maybe this person is, but let's look for some sort of miracle that, that happened around the intercession of this person. And then they would go on to beatify them if they, if they were satisfied that there was something. With a martyr, like Daswa, um, they say, martyrs don't go through that process. They, may, they immediately get beatified um, uh. without any kind of miracle uh, being involved. So it is, uh, it, is, uh, it is quite extraordinary for A, a lay person, and B, uh, the, way that it, uh, the way that it kind of happened. Um, it, it was, it was uh, yeah, different. But it has significance in context now because uh, witchcraft and ritual killing still continue in, uh, particularly in that province of Limpopo. But, um, you know, we've also had um, uh, outbreaks of violence in the country, uh, xenophobic violence and things. So uh, there is there are broader messages from uh, this beatification, isn't there? Oh, for sure. And I think Deputy President Ramaphosa, who was actually present at the beatification, spoke about this where he said, that this highlights that there's an issue that people in our country are still not free, that uh, people are still victims to this kind of thinking. And it should hopefully, he said, uh, in that area and maybe in the country, spark some sort of ongoing dialogue about the questions around witchcraft and sorcery and ritual killing mm. and, and things like that. But I, but I think it is. It's true. It's broader because I think that um, Daswa was, was someone, although he grew up there, he was actually originally from Zimbabwe, so he was really a foreigner. He was living... In, in that village as well. But he was clearly well-respected because the headman there uh, took him on his council. So it wasn't that he was uh, sort of uh, pushed to the margins. He was someone who came from somewhere else, who, who was consulted, who, who certainly helped to build a number of things in the village. He was a principal of, a, of the local primary school there and apparently a very good educator. So it does highlight the question as well of, you know, the dignity of the human person, uh, how we treat people uh, who, who come from outside, the contribution that they can make, uh, yeah, a whole lot of issues. He was a very good family man. And even from a traditional perspective, there's stories that he was, for example, quite willing to wash dishes in his household. And uh, other people in the village used to say, like, how is it that you, a man, could mm. wash dishes? So, Well, then he definitely deserved to be a martyr, <laughs> hey? <laughs> <laughs> challenging, challenging those stereotypes. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the other thing is that the Catholic Church is often um, accused of being out of touch with society. It's so steeped in tradition mm. that, you know, there is this disjunct between, how, you know, that the Catholic Church rotates on its own axis and the rest of society gets on with it. So, you know, is this the, an attempt by... By the church in South Africa to um, connect more with communities and, and big issues in the communities? I think it is. And I think that in a number of places, the church is connecting in communities. I mean, there's lots of stories that are not always told. 
where the church is actually working in communities, where some of the missionaries up there are still working in areas where witchcraft, etc., etc., is quite uh, prevalent. And they, and they are talking to local people, and they are trying to set up conversations about this. So I think it is a way of the church uh, trying to be in touch. I mean, I think the whole question of gender, gender, gender stereotypes is something, uh, a conversation around there, although the church has to be a little bit careful, dare I say, about mm. talking about gender, given certain rules, like only men can become priests. Mm. I think the question of uh, foreigners in communities, I think there's, there's a lot of... Uh, 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 he, he's been promoted as well because of his role as a family man. Um, there's, there's very much a sense that you know, he had eight children. This was a really good family man. Uh, he, he, you know, he was a good husband to, to his wife. And, and there are some stories even that his wife at times wasn't always faithful to him, but he, was, wow. he, he took her back, etc. Those types of things. So I think that the church is in touch with, uh, with what's happening on the ground. The problem is there's, there's almost two churches. There's the church that everybody sees, all the pomp and ceremony, which mm. looks out of touch. And then there is the church that's working in hospitals and schools and in these communities in far out places where at times they don't even have a basic like electricity or running water. And, you know, uh, lastly, Russell, uh, you know, at a time when South Africa is battling for good leadership and role models, it must be quite a novel idea for somebody from Hicksville, Limpopo to, you know, get the status of martyrdom and be recognized by the Pope. Chitanini, you mean? Chitanini. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what you were trying to say. <laughs> yes. I just mispronounced it. <laughs> if, you, if you can find it on Google Maps, I'll buy you supper. I'll take that up. <laughs> Ranjini, your question? Yeah, I was saying that, <laughs> uh, that uh, it, it's quite novel for somebody like, um, you know, from, from the. Uh, from, from Higgs. I can't, can't think of Russell. It. I was just, <laughs> I'm going to ask how, when you were there, how yeah. was the ceremony? Because mm-hmm. I heard there was something like 30 or 40,000 people there. Can you just tell us a little bit about the atmosphere at that ceremony? Yeah, yeah the atmosphere was great. In fact, um, many more people pitched up to what they were expecting. And, and you need to understand, this place was like 6Ks along a very narrow dirt road where they had to bring in massive generators to, mm. for, for, for sound and for power, etc. Et people poured in from all over South Africa. Buses came from Cape Town and there's really a jubilant atmosphere. People were dressed in sort of traditional wear. Um, there was a fantastic sort of uh, emergence between African tradition and the kind of rituals of the church. Uh, I, I would say that people were really celebrating. It was a great atmosphere. And what struck me as well as I was working with a number of the media there, but even people who were sent in from like SABC or ENCA who knew nothing about this were quite intrigued and enthusiastic about uh, about Dasha and what was happening and what it meant for the country. Um, so it was it was a fantastic atmosphere and I think uh, a really joyful one. Yeah, the question I was trying to ask before I was so rudely interrupted is that having a martyr now in in Southern Africa does that set an example for good leadership or a, a, a good role model? Because in our society, I think that's a moving target as to what exactly is a good leader. Yeah, and here you have that. like an ordinary person, just an ordinary teacher, a father who has got now got the status of martyrdom. Yeah, and I, mean, I think let's face facts. I think there's a deficit of leadership in the country uh, across the board, corporately, even in the religious sector, I would say there's a deficit of leadership. And so I think someone like Daswa is an example um, to, to people of what good leadership is. And, you know, for, for secular people, for non-religious people, I think, you know, there have always been icons that we uphold, people who were good leaders or people who were, who were kind of uh, inspirational, exemplary. And, and from a secular point of view, I think that's what the church is doing. We're saying, yes, somebody who was an ordinary fellow who kind of had the, the struggles of ordinary life, 
who came from uh, a situation of poverty, yet lived his life with integrity. Um, so it's not impossible for the rest of us to do that. Mm. And it's not impossible for us as well to, to take on his kind of style of leadership. He has a style of leadership that obviously worked, um, despite the, the end that he met. But if you look at the stuff that he did in your school, etc. And so I think it is an example uh, to, to us of, of a leader, of somebody who uh, we can draw some inspiration from a leaf out of his book and say, well, you know, he has another great South African who has something to, to teach the rest of us. Mm. Russell, I'm interested in um, what role uh, Pope Francis plays in all of this because we've seen that he's been quite a progressive Pope and he's he's taken quite strong stances on certain issues um, where where even even ca- causing division sometimes. Um, and is this another example that sort of fits in with his track record, or or was this just going to happen regardless of who was going to be Pope? No, I think that um, he did have something to do in the whole process. Look, none of these guys can actually get to that status unless it is it kind of goes over the Pope's desk. And he certainly has shown interest in uh, in Daswa. He sent one of his most senior aides, Cardinal uh, Angelo Marta, to actually preside over the beatification. So he, it was a sort of personal envoy. Um, and I think Francis is looking for examples of, of ordinary people as he has been punted very much as the Pope of, of ordinary people uh, that can say to the Church, look, these are ordinary people doing extraordinary things, so to speak. So uh, Francis certainly would have stamped it. Francis knows the story. It, the Daswa case would be one which is very much close to his heart. He talks often about people who struggle in sort of rural areas, in poverty. He talks about, uh, you know, the injustice of society. Uh, and Daswa kind of, you know, in many ways ticks all those uh, those boxes. So although he didn't come himself, uh, he certainly would have, uh, would have uh, signed the papers. And in fact, in February, he did sign the papers after the cause was presented to him and then the date was set for the actual ceremony itself. Um, but you talk about the divisions that he's caused. I mean, I see the headlines today that he said that churches and religious institutions in Europe that do not want to take refugees in, as he called to, because some of them are saying, no, you know, they'll, they, they'll, they'll take up space, or they, we won't be able to rent that room out for, for, as we've been doing. He's just said, well, if you don't want to take in refugees, then you should be forced to pay property tax. So this hasn't gone down well in some quarters either. And the Pope is just about to set off on a tour of the U.S. and address the U.N. General Assembly, right? He is, yes. This week, later this week, he goes to Cuba, and then he'll go to the U.S., and uh, it's going to be very interesting to watch because the United States is probably the most divided uh, Catholic Church in the world uh, between sort of more progressive and, and, and conservatives, and there's huge cultural battles going on. So the way that Francis kind of... Uh, it's going to move between those two lines. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Okay. We'll continue to, to talk to you as we watch this play out. Russell, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Okay, perfect. This is the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We're just going to go into a quick break and be right back. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. It's just before 20 to 2 p.m. when you're back on the Daily Maverick Show. Please, please, please join us on Twitter on at DMShowZA and you can call us on 0861 We'd love to hear from you. People on WeChat and also on the app, please, please, please share your comments with us. I'm joined by Greg Nicholson for Tima Matiba and Ranjani Munasami. And just before the break, um, um, one of our callers in, or guest rather, Russell from the Jesuits Institute, um, mentioned something about Pope Francis and 
and how he's spoken up a bit about the, the European migrant crisis. And Anjani, I wanted to, to hear from you. You were recently in Turkey, and if I'm not wrong, interacted with some, with some people that are really part of, of what's playing out. I'm really curious what's going on on the ground. We just follow it on Twitter and on the news. I'm really curious what's going on over there. I think I, I wasn't actually mentally prepared for, for what I saw, I saw there. Um, you know, Turkey, Turkey's location is, um, you know, and, and its politics is, are quite complicated. Mm. But what is happening is that it is, it is a prime channel at the moment for refugees from Syria. Um, through to um, through to Europe, and um, and you know it's complicated by other factors such as Turkey's war with the Kurds. So you know you don't actually appreciate how dangerous it is um, for all those refugees, especially people with children, to cross firstly from Syria into Turkey and then through Turkey and then make their way across um, either the Asian Sea or the Mediterranean or, you know, whichever um, channel that they, they, they are going into Europe and then get into some European country, whichever one it is, and then to finally reach their final destination. Mm. It is completely and utterly harrowing. It is heartbreaking. I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean... Our country has a lot of uh, you know, e- economic migrants and people who are homeless, people who live on the streets. But to see this in mass, and it's all, uh, you know, the, like the people I interacted with, I've, the, the first place I saw them was at, the, at a bus station in Izmir, which is a coastal city um, on the on the western end of uh, of Turkey, and um, there's all these young, vibrant people sleeping on the streets. And it's only when you speak to them that you realize that it's just you know it's not people that are just leaving to get jobs. Their the, the individual stories are so heartbreaking. I mean, the, the one guy I was speaking to um, is an architect. Um, and he had to leave uh, He and his brother His brother was a journalist uh, Actually fled from Syria Because he says that they, 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 On their way to work For example every day They get pulled off at a checkpoint And they either get recruited To fight on the side of, uh, side of ISIL, uh, ISIL Or on the side of the, the Syrian army And he says You know we're human beings We do not want to kill anybody mm. um, You know we do not want We don't support either side We don't And one is as bad as the other We do not want to fight in this war but, you know, they were also explaining people I met on the beach, for example, waiting for boats to cross the sea. And they were saying that, you know, they, they battled to speak English. So they were battled, battling to communicate how exactly, uh, you know, or what exactly was going on in Damascus, for example. But they, says, they, they were saying things like, it just rains bombs. You don't know where it's going to fall. You don't know if it's coming from ISIL or from the Syrian military or from the coalition forces. But they say that the bombs just fall all the time. You, 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 like every five minutes, there is some other explosion. You live in a constant state of fear. And I think only when you, when you see that, from that perspective, do you realize why people are fleeing in you know in mass the way they are and taking such risks and putting you know like young children like mm. the little boy who died Alan Kurdi um, on on little um, rubber boats you know to cross the sea uh, and why they would take those risks and what, you know the the kind of abuses they suffer as well you know the, I mean we, pe- people in Turkey don't really want them in their country they mm. see them as a nuisance um, they don't want to host them and the, the the European countries are also reacting in different ways so far it has only been Germany that has been willing to uh, accept the refugees mm. but other countries have been quite hostile to it um, and you've had some shocking statements 
statements, for, for example, from the Hungarian prime minister who said, you know, we are a Christian country and we don't want Muslim people in our country. So, you know, there's, it's it just a complete and utter horror show. It's, it's such, um, a, a worrying state of humanity that people can, can be so afraid, you know, fleeing for their lives and then don't get any kind of empathy from, from, from other people who, you know, whose countries they're coming into. Yeah, I was reading, I think Hungary is now, it's, they're now imprisoning people who enter the country illegally. And, and in, in case, some cases deporting them. So it's really, you come, it's either jail or we send you back somehow. I mean, if you watch the international networks and you, you see the, you know, the kind of images there, you know, of uh, people on the trains crossing, uh, wanting to cross through Hungary into Austria and then eventually into Germany. Mm. And, you know, you see people, fathers and mothers holding onto their babies, falling onto the, the railway tracks, clutching their children, you know, screaming to be let back onto the trains. Yeah. Um, you know, and, um, I was watching, for example, on Sky News the other day, um, like what exactly happens on those boats when they cross? Because, you know, you only, your mind only takes you so far. You see the, I, I for example, saw the refugees on, on the coast or, yeah. you know, on the beach waiting for the boats. Yeah. And then sometimes you see the people on the other side when they get off. But actually what happens on the sea is that the pirates there as well. There's the, the Turkish coast guard who shoots at them. Uh, and then also, you know, the turbulence of the water, the storms. There's the fact that those boats malfunction because they're just like badly made uh, rubber dinghies. So, they, you know, there's like 10 things that can go wrong on the water that can cause them to die on the water. So, for example, one of the guys I was speaking to said he went, he had been on the boat three days before I met him and the boat turned over and he fell out and, he, and his friends um, fell over as well. So they were rescued. And they were going to still make the trip again, even though they almost died. But he said dying in the water is much better than dying with, you know, like, you know, this frightening thing of living with bombs falling down all over you and, um, you know, dying in a horrendous explosion or having to kill people if you get recruited by ISIL. Hmm. I think that's what we're really hoping that the European Commission will come to some kind of, you know, positive solution or positive steps to and, and we're hoping that it will be an accommodating stance rather than a, how do we keep these people out of our countries but the, but the it seems like so we've seen certain you know certain regulations and laws temporarily lifted particularly to allow um migrants to travel into germany and munich yeah. but what i think and, and the eu's met this week which looks like they'll settle on a deal to to settle something like 120,000 mm. refugees across mm. the eu but the challenge is with with the eu's Quite the more traditional Western states in Europe that, yeah. that have formed the EU for longer and the Eastern states that are f- part of the former Soviet bloc. Mm. It's really raised issues of cultural and economic and political differences, uh, in these different places. And I think even if they manage to settle, let's say 120,000 in this sort of deal across the EU in different, in different areas, I think they're really going to struggle to find a, a long-term solution that remains that respects humanitarian values because I think one of the things they're talking about now is almost adopting an Australian type solution where in Australia we have um, offshore processing centres so so that anyone, any asylum seekers who come by boats uh, know that they're just going to get sent to, you know, to Nauru or one of the islands of Australia or somewhere like that mm-hmm. and so there's no point getting in a boat to come to Australia anymore and that helps Australians uh, helps Australia try to uh, try to avoid the 
the issue of boats sinking on the, on the journey, you know, towards Australia and then sort of it also helps the nation wash their hands of the migrants while they lock up these asylum seekers, sometimes for years on end, processing their claims, putting them through horrendous conditions, jail-like conditions. It's really, really jails. And, and so, so for Australian citizens, you know, it helps save their, their fears of, you know, this migrant, um, flood of migrants coming mm. in and taking over the culture and, and our jobs and all that sort of, sort of thing. Mm. Um, and the EU, it seems like they're sort of talking about, about setting up, um, immigration centers, particularly in African nations, I think sort of Northern African nations, where the migrants could go or sort of have these centers and you process them there, then, you know, they get, they get brought out to their European nations. Yeah. But I don't know if that's a positive long-term solution. I think instead what it's likely to do is just set up these huge sort of refugee type camps in areas while, while helping the European nations just, just avoid what's happened in the recent sort of weeks mm. where, where they've had a huge, huge influx, um, of migrants. And I think for migrants in the long term, I think it's going to be a negative situation. I think they're going to be further stuck in their, in the sort of places where they're coming from. Yeah. I think the most worrying thing about this, um, refugee crisis is that the most powerful nations in the world can really only do something or uh, 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 trying to do something to deal with this influx of, of, of people or mass migration of people. Um, but the, the global powers can really do nothing to resolve the Syrian conflict. And, you know, that the masses and masses of people will continue to stream out of Syria for as long as it remains unstable, for as long as ISIL is alive and continues its murderous campaign, and for as long as uh, Bashar al-Assad remains in power. Well, I think it's an interesting point. I think that the sort of large, particularly Western nations, have to take more responsibility when dealing with these crisis points. Because yeah. we've seen a lot of these migrants also Libyan um, and I think a lot of nations have to ask themselves now, particularly, you know, the, the ones was it France and Britain, I think they were doing the, the no fly zone, which was supported by South Africa at the UN, mm. um, over Libya and, and, and sort of ended up, you know, in the overthrowing of, uh, uh, oh, Gaddafi. But what it caused was, you know, it's a fractured nation. Yeah. Uh, Libya remains a fractured nation to today. Today, there's no set government that can control the whole place. And that was caused by, by that period then. Should they not have intervened? I don't know, you know. Like that's we we can't really ask that in retrospect. Who knows? But interestingly, I'm reading just now online is that there's a the Guardian has an exclusive piece saying that the West ignored an alleged Russian offer in 2012 to to for Russia to mediate to have Syria's Assad step aside and wow. broker a peace deal. And so it seems if this if these allegations are true mm. that some of these Western nations could have used Russia's influence in Syria because they have. Syria has quite strong ties, I mean, so Russia has quite strong ties to the government uh, of Syria to broker a peace deal. And if they, if they rejected the offer for Russian help to broker a peace deal and have Assad step aside, they could be responsible for thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths and many, many more migrants um, and, and, and uh, refugees. I think I'm definitely with you in that I don't know if taking the the sort of processing center route is the best. And I think there has to be some kind of direct intervention, either politically or physically with, with Syria, because that's where it's all coming from. And well, we can't you can't sit on the receiving end and be like, what do we do on this side? Yeah, the, I think that the dilemma uh, in global politics now is which is 
which is more evil? The, uh, is it ISIL or is it the, the government of Bashar al-Assad? Mm. And, um, you know, at the moment, the, the focus of the, the U.S. and his allies, for example, is to defeat ISIL. Um, but all that does is prop up the government of Bashar al-Assad. And now Russia is lining up behind the Syrian government. Um, you know, so it's, it, it, it's, it's a very complicated conflict mm-hmm. and, uh, there are no easy answers to it. Mm. And it's also interesting because when initially with the Syrian situation, I think there were the commentators in the United States saying this is sort of like a war that, that we've sort of done well in a way. I think that was at the very, very early stages where we haven't, wasn't in Afghanistan, wasn't in Iraq, Iraq yeah. where they had boots on the ground yeah. and they were sending in so many troops. Mm-hmm. I was saying sort of this is a way, you know, to not, Get too deeply involved, mm, but still like, but but still try and have some sort of influence on the sidelines by perhaps um, I think they were supporting the Free Syrian Army for a while. I'm not sure if that's still going on, but and I think most people would agree that that we don't want you know large scale occupations from Western forces in in these nations. Mm. But at the same time, there has with with no interventions, we've had Syria just you know going on on and on and on with. Major casualties, um, um, bringing out this huge migrant crisis. So it's one, one of those sort of things. International diplomacy. What do you do in the future? I mean, at the end of the day, it's something that's still playing out every day. Like you just said, the exclusive. Now I think every day there's new information coming out of of Europe and the EU and Syria. So I guess we'll just continue to watch it. Mm. Please, please, please join us on Twitter and via the WeChat's uh, app and also our Cliff Central app. Um, we've got a couple minutes left on the show. Greg, I'm interested in that you mentioned Australia's stance because you guys got a new prime minister yesterday. We did. That's right. I yeah. just came out of nowhere. I was just sitting and doing really. it. just kind of happened. Not quite. Not okay. quite. Australia's had, uh, in recent years, I'm not sure quite why, but in recent years, <laughs> Australia's been turning over prime ministers, you know, like like underwear or something. So, yeah. So what, why, five in one year, in five years. That's a, that's. I'm really worried about the state of your underwear, Greg. We're not really a clean bunch, us <laughs> Australians. <laughs> we just go swimming a lot and hope that can <laughs> help. But yeah, so so uh, the Liberal Party voted in um, Malcolm Turnbull as the new leader and voting, uh, taking over from Tony Abbott. Mm. Which, uh, it's actually been coming for quite a while. I think there was something like 30 opinion polls wow. showing that, that the public preferred Malcolm Turnbull as the leader as opposed to Tony Abbott of, of the Liberal Party. Hmm. And so I guess for our listeners, I'm sure some know about Australian politics, but Tony Abbott, uh, is known for, I guess he's quite brash stance on politics, you know, and some, some people say it's dumbing down politics, which I, I think it is, he's generally in sort of a campaign mode, you know, sort of fierce attacking, mm. um, sort of brash stance rather with him or not, and sort of playing to the, I don't want to say peanut gallery, but sort of almost a, a populist, um, conservative type of... Is it of fair to say a Donald Trump-ish approach to politics? No, not quite that not, bad. Not, that <laughs> bad. <laughs> yeah. not, okay. not quite that bad, but he still does have, he's, he's not afraid of speaking his mind, yeah. and he's certainly not a political correct, politically correct okay. character. And Malcolm Turnbull has been, has long been a, a public fra- favorite, uh, but in, within the Liberal Party, he hasn't mm. sort of had the backers. He's sort of a softer, more of a centrist rather than, rather than sort of central right politician. Um, so he hasn't had quite had the backers within the Liberal Party, but I think they just had to bite the bullet and sort of take, look at their election chances and say, okay, let's grab this guy. And so you saw, I'm sure everyone knows about what Tony Abbott did in terms of reintroducing um, I can't remember the actual wording, but you know where Australia can uh, create knights 
and things like that. So Tony Abbott reintroduced that, and then we knighted Prince Philip for some reason. You know, and Australians yeah. were outraged over that. It's just, <laughs> so, so it that just, just sounds so random. So Australia decided to knight Prince Philip just for just. Yeah, so we reintroduced okay. that. That's been gone for a long time. You know, okay. we have, of course, Australia is still under the the British monarchy, yeah. but yeah. um, you know, the links aren't so ob- obvious. It would be so difficult for you to decide whether you, you stay here and you have a chance of being a martyr or go to Australia and have a chance of being knighted. <laughs> it's actually quite interesting because a lot of Australians that I know and, and some of my friends and things who mm. aren't, aren't quite fans of Tony Abbott just sort of said if he continues to stay a leader, they're going to move. They're not. They're not going to stay in Australia. Oh, that'd be hilarious. They did not like Australia. Where are they going to go? South Africa. <laughs> they can, they can just, just, oh just, just, just take the properties of all of that. That would just be brilliant. Australian singer moving to South Africa would just be amazing. That's right. Okay. With well, the last couple of minutes, is Homona Lady a plot to say that baboons? Are the ancestors of black people. The team has been re- researching this one. Can you tell us a little bit about so that? So we had Ravi and MP Matole Monseca saying this is just, this is ridiculous. I'm not the descendant of a baboon and homeowner lady and this whole science is racist. Fatima, what do you think? So there's an article that I read and it starts by saying homeowner lady is a racist ploy. Yeah, using pseudoscience to link Africans to subhuman baboon-like creatures. Yeah, I think that was Matole Monseca. And? Uh, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't think anybody is saying that, that that black people are descendants of baboons. I no, I, and I think that the, the scientists have made it quite, made it quite clear that they they different species anyway from from baboons, um, and these are hominids. Uh, so it's clearly the the predecessors to to human beings, not predecessors mm. to baboons. And yeah. you know, I think that they've got the entire flow chart of. Uh, human evolution wrong, which is why the arguments don't make sense. Mm. But I think that, you know, it's also worrying about, um, I think the state of, of, uh, of intellectual debate, of education in our country, you know, where people, um, you know, just go to, uh, you know, just jump to su- such a conclusion without actually thinking or trying to find out properly what this actually means and what the scientists have been trying to say, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, for example, we, I've been watching Zelensky Mavavi's tweets on Twitter and yeah. it's just like, it's some of the things are so simple to answer mm. if he just did basically research or just picked up the phone and phoned debug and said please explain this to me mm. well, uh, I don't even think it takes that if you just sort of read a simple article yeah. a basic article explaining what it is yeah. I think then you can make that difference yeah. and understand a little bit more what it is rather than I assume people probably just look at the picture yeah. and take it from there I mean, I think in the last one or two minutes, I think, and Greg, you and I argued a bit about this the other day. Is it possible that because in in the past, science has been used for racist justifications? So is it possible? So eugenics and whatnot? Yeah. And justifying that black people are subhuman and lesser and so on. So is it possible that there's some people who are somewhat justified in, in a mistrust? I- Even if that mistrust is not based on... A clear understanding of what of what homeowner lady is all about, but just like a, we've heard these things before, and and we already just don't trust science because it's political and it's not it's not fact, it's not scientific. 
Look, there is that uh, there is that argument, and I think um, you know that they, uh, um, many people use science and use all sorts of other nonsensical um, premises to be racist and uh, to to be prejudiced against certain people and 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 certain race groups. So you, I mean, you you can't you can't help that because that is how our our society is wired, um, and I think that will only change when you have greater representativity of black people across sectors and in the sciences where um, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, and if, if you have more black people, uh, uh, you know, as archaeologists, as paleontologists mm-hmm. and things like that, then I think there'd be, there would be, uh, you know, conservative parts of society would be more susceptible to listening uh, to what they have to say. I think there is a natural suspicion where you have a group of all white scientists coming and, and announcing this and people don't understand what they're saying and then they're just naturally um, suspicious of their agenda. So you run, you definitely do run that risk. Okay. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you for tuning into the Daily Mary with Sean Cliff Central. Remember, you can download the podcast. Please share it far and wide. We'll see you next week. As usual, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.